so for those of you that are visiting, we um, have been doing a series out of the book of Philippians, which I've called Joyful Christian Living. And we're trying to understand what Paul, as we write into this church, to help them to live joyfully no matter what the circumstances they are in. That's basically one of the great themes of uh, Philippians. And uh, I'm going to read, if you want to follow with me, please, on your Bible, on your phone, or if you've got a paper copy, that's great. Let's have a look at Philippians chapter 3. Uh, and we're going to talk about keeping your eyes on the prize. Anyone heard of a, a folk singer from the 60s? I'm showing my age again. Called Pete Seeger. Anyone heard of Pete Seeger? Yes, Pete Seeger is a famous, famous, famous uh, singer-songwriter. And uh, Bruce Springsteen did a, a session five years ago, six years ago, where he took a whole lot of songs made famous by Pete Seeger, and uh, he recorded them. And if you've got some time and you want to listen, they, they were, it's called the Seeger Sessions. And one of the songs that he does do again is this uh, old Negro spiritual called Keep Your Eyes on the Prize. And it does encapsulate something I want to say this morning, and it's really based on the scripture, Philippians 3, verse 12, where Paul writes, and he says, not, on, not that I've already attained all of this, or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you, only let us live up to what we have already attained. Very, very, very rich portion of the scripture, and I'm going to point out some things this morning which I think are fairly self-evident out of the, the portion that we've read together, and I hope they're going to encourage you and help you in terms of your own life that you would uh, live to win the prize, all right? Uh, Philippians chapter 3, just to summarize where we've, how we've got to this point. Remember, Paul begins the chapter by encouraging the church to rejoice. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He's calling them to this, this courageous life in Christ. And then he goes on in, in the early part of chapter 3 to talk, start introducing this theme that he's kind of been talking about. There are these guys called Judaizers who've come into the church. They've got a Jewish background, and they're kind of insisting that these Christians start adding a couple of things to the good news of the gospel. And so they've said things like, uh, you must be circumcised if you're a male. You must adopt a British, um, a British, <laughs> and, uh, an Israelite nationality. You, you need to be a little bit more nationalistic in being an Israelite to truly be a part of the kingdom of God. And so what does Paul do? He has that whole portion where he says, that, well, if you want pedigree, let me talk about my pedigree. I'm a Jew of a Jew. Uh, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I, I'm a, of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, I, the God's favorite two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. I am a part of the tribe of Benjamin. I have done all. I will, according to the law, I am righteous in every way, but all those things that were advantages to me that you might think I would depend upon, I have cast them off and consider them all rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. So that's what Paul has already said. And then he says these amazing words, which I looked at a couple of weeks ago. He says, we who walk by faith... Follow the Spirit of God and worship in spirit and truth. We are the true circumcision. 
That's what he says. He says he kind of he's quite rude to these these um, people. He says he says, uh, "Beware of the dogs." <laughs> That's that portion in chapter three. Beware of the dogs. Those that would say you look at the outward things and and say you must be circumcised. No, no, they they are not the true circumcision. The circumcision of the, the spirit happens in your heart, and God gives you a whole new heart and a whole new outlook on life. And that is the true circumcision. That is what God is looking for: people who walk by faith and worship Him in spirit and in truth. All right. And then He says uh, in verse eight. That's how we've got to continue living. Remember, we looked at the righteousness that is from Christ. That righteousness that is a gift to us it, it, and clothes us, it starts to transform our lives. And Paul says in those verses that you are saved by grace and you continue to live by grace. It's not when you're, when you're saved and you believe by faith, you continue to live by faith. You don't suddenly adopt a whole lot of rules and say, now that I'm saved, I'm going to follow these rules. No, Paul says, no, you live by the Spirit. What you do is you keep your eyes on Jesus and you continue to trust Him for every aspect of your life. And as you live and walk trusting in Jesus, that's what persevering faith is. And that's what God loves. You're saved by grace, you walk by grace, and you live in the freedom that Christ has bought for you. That's what Paul says. And then, um, last time I preached, I looked at verse 11, where Paul starts to introduce this thing of saying that he's living for the highest honor possible. He's living for his rewards that will be given him at the resurrection when he has a glorified body. And he says that's what he's living for. And he encourages all of us to live for an eternal reward, to live for what is eternal, not what is temporal. And that's what he's going to carry. We're going to look um, uh, at this morning because this portion really begins to unpack that in detail. And he starts with this little phrase, not that I have already obtained all of this. It's clear, if you look at this portion, that he's, he's talking about the prize, because he says it quite clearly in verse 14. Uh, he's, he's, he's trying to say that he's not yet accomplished everything that God has for him in his life. He hasn't fully achieved it, and so he's pressing on towards that prize which Christ has for him. And I pointed this out last time, remember? Paul unpacks this. He says, well, you know, everyone's going to be resurrected from the dead. So he's not talking about resurrection. He's talking about the fact that at the resurrection, there is reward for those who follow Christ. And the reward is not the same for everyone. And uh, we've, we've got to understand that. We've got to be motivated by the right things. So actually, there's a heavenly reward for us. And why we persevere now, why we endure suffering, why we do what we do, is because we love Jesus and we're living for a heavenly reward. Spiritual ambition is a good thing. Wanting to do things for Christ that motivate you deeply from the inside is a very positive thing. And so Paul is saying, that which I'm aiming for, that's what I'm living for, I have not yet received, but I press on for this prize, this thing that God has for me in eternity, I press on. And that's why he uses this, um, these words, not yet attained, not yet arrived at my goal. And so the question that I'd like to ask for, uh, that we're going to look at this morning is how can we learn from all of this? And how can each of us, if you want to go to the next slide, how can each of us get to God's prize of resurrection reward. How can we live in such a way as to get the prize that God has for us? And uh, that's why I've called this message, keep your eye on the prize, all right? 
We need to be motivated by some, deep in, on, on the inside of us by eternal things. That's what I'm trying to say this morning. So how can we get to God's resurrection reward for our lives, if that's what Paul says we should be living for? Well, I've got 10 little things, and don't faint in your heart when I say 10, all right? They're very simple, they're self-evident, and as you read the Scripture, you will see them for yourself. The first thing I want to say is this. First of all, it takes time. It takes time to reach what God has for you. Remember, the context of this letter, Paul has already been a Christian for 30 years. He's an apostle. He's planted churches. He's done all this stuff. He's seen lots of people saved. He's seen uh, people healed and all those wonderful things. And yet, even in this stage of his life, he's still saying, God, I still haven't, I haven't reached the full reward that you have for me. Remember, there's the scripture that we don't like very much as charismatics. It's through faith and patience that we inherit the promise of God. And so I'm in my 50s now. I'm grateful for what God has done in my life, and I'm still looking forward to the future, to what God has for me. Yes? And so Paul, he doesn't rest on his laurels. He understands, no, this takes time. And for all of you, whether you are young and starting out in your life, or whether you're a little bit older like me and looking back on some of your life and still looking forward to your life, just remember this. The Christian life takes time to see God's promises fulfilled. Don't be discouraged. Don't give up in doing good, for in due time you will reap the reward. First thing I want to say. Secondly, it takes honesty and it takes realism. Paul, with all of his knowledge, all of his spiritual gifts, all of his his intellectual brilliance, he doesn't pretend that he knows everything. I said last time, humility is a powerful thing in church life. As soon as you start to think you know everything... You are backsliding in a sense. You are kind of not going forward. I heard that, know that, been around the church for a while. Now, what is Paul's heart? Paul's heart is, no, God, I recognize that I need more of Jesus. I recognize that I need more of the community of believers. I I recognize I need all of these things, more of these things. And so there's a realism, there's an honesty in his life that he hasn't arrived, that he doesn't know everything. Despite all the good things that God has used him for, there is still more. And so I want to say to you as God's people, despite all the good things God might have used you for in your past uh, and God is doing in your life right now, there is still more for you if you will ask and humbly open your heart and say, Jesus, I've not yet arrived. Thirdly, it takes spiritual ambition. I already kind of hinted at this. It takes spiritual ambition. He says, not that I've already attained all of this, already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Uh, here, the Greek is really interesting. The, the phrase to take hold of in the Greek really means grasped. It means Jesus has grasped me. He's taken hold of me. And I want to grasp what Jesus has for me because he's grasped me. He's, he's, he's reached into my life and he's transformed me for a purpose. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying God has got hold of me with his hands. And he said, Ant, I'm taking you out of that past and I'm giving you a future because you, I have something for you to live in. He's grasped us. And he's grasped you. And he's grasped everyone here that knows him 
by faith. And so the whole idea in this phrase is that there's a purpose for your life. That's why Paul presses on. It's not about being saved. He already knows that he's saved. It's not that he's anxious about his salvation. So he's saying, oh, I better really press on because I'm not sure that I'm saved. No, he knows that he's saved. He's absolutely convinced of that. And why he presses on is because God has a goal for my life, which I have not yet fully realized. And I press on to take that thing that God has grasped me for. And so I want to say to you, plenty of ambition around, (laughs) plenty of earthly ambition, ambition for success in business or career, ambition for financial success or sporting success for our children or whatever it is, lots of ambition. And in of themselves, those things are not bad. But I'm saying, what about spiritual ambition? What about the basic motivation of my life being, Jesus, I want to live for you. Oh. You know, sometimes I, I drive past the gym on my way to church, 8 o'clock Sunday morning. People walking their dogs. People find it, they're more committed to going to gym and walking their dog than they are to coming with, worship, with worshiping with God's people. Why? No spiritual ambition. No sense of, Jesus, you've transformed my life. No sense, oh God, I want to be with your people so that I can grow to be more and more like you. We are ambitious, but sometimes for the wrong things. (laughs) You know what's going to best transform your life and your marriage and your parenting? Quality time with your kids, yeah, that's good. But actually the transforming power of Christian community That's what transformed your life. The Word and the Spirit working together to transform us and make us more and more like Jesus. Are all those other things bad? No, they're not. Walking your dog is good. Exercising is good. I do it three times a week. But it's not the main thing. (laughs) The main thing is Jesus. The main thing is His kingdom. The main thing that I'm asking myself as I'm asking you is, God, what am I living for? All of these things that I've done with my life, they're good. But Jesus, I want to keep you the main thing. Amen? Fourth, it takes a sense of calling. You see, I've said this already, but Paul is pressing on not because he's fearful he's not safe, but because he's living for this purpose, this destiny for his life. And, and what does that destiny look for, like for, for Paul? Well, I, I think there are a couple of things we can think about. He's got several ingredients. Uh, we've said, seen it already in this chapter. He says, well, I want to I know the power of the resurrection. That's certainly something of God's destiny for Paul's life. And we looked at that in detail. What does the power of the resurrection look like? Well, it's signs and wonders, and it's all of those things. It's also the ability to say no to what is ungodly. It's also the ability to know the will of God for your life. It's all of these things, and when Paul talks about the power of the resurrection, that's what he's talking about. And so it certainly is that for Paul. It's also, in his case, he was a church planter, so it has to do with something of planting churches and seeing the kingdom come. But it also has to do with this thing of receiving the prize. And I want to encourage you, if you've never thought about it in the, at all, to think about what the prize is for you. Yes, there's a prize for you. It's not bad to be motivated by that. It's good to be motivated for the heavenly reward, the well done of the Father over your life. And so 
I've said this last week, but I want to say it again just to reiterate it. 2 Timothy 4, at the end of his life, Paul's language changes. At this time, when he's writing to the Philippians, he's saying, I still haven't still haven't uh, achieved all that God has for me. I'm still looking to that prize. What happens in 2 Timothy when he's writing right at the end of of his life? He says this, I have fought the good fight. I have run the race. I've finished. I've guarded the faith. And now what awaits for me is the crown that Jesus himself, the righteous judge, is going to give me. And so, you see, there's the sense of destiny that Paul enables, enables Paul to live like he lived. And I'm doing my best to try and encourage you, whatever your life, whatever your circumstances, that there's an eternal destiny that can motivate you and help you to get through all of the stuff. There's so much stuff, isn't there? There's so much pain. We, we referenced it again this morning. There's so much sin. There's so much brokenness. How do we get through that stuff and live joyfully? Well, keep your eye on the prize. There's eternal reward for you. There's eternal reward for me. That's why we live. You know, um, Karl Marx poked fun at that. He said, this is the problem with the Christians. They're all concerned about the pie in the sky when you die. They're all concerned about heaven, and that's no good to workers on earth. Well, I want to say I completely disagree with Marx. If we lived a little bit more with love in our hearts, if we lived a little bit more with eternal glory in our heart, perhaps we would treat the workers differently. If we're really living for Jesus... If we're really trying to be love and salt and light, perhaps it means that if to work that out, we treat each other really, really differently because we treat each other with the love that God has lavished on our hearts. Living for eternal glory makes an incredible difference to how you live right now. What motivates you? How you treat people? It's not pie in the sky when you die. It's living for that eternal reward that God will confer on all those that love Him. Fifth, do you notice the urgency of this language? It needs single-mindedness. To get the prize that God has for you requires a single-mindedness. There's an urgency in Paul's language. Brothers and sisters includes all of us. The word there's adelphoi, which means brothers and sisters. Everyone's included in this thing. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. There it is. There's this urgency. Single-minded urgency. One thing that I do, he says. And as I've been looking at this this week, I'm fascinated that there are a number of scriptures that talk about the one thing. And I'll just mention them now, and you can in your devotions go and have a look at them. Well, obviously, Philippians 3, we're looking at it now. Romans 13, uh, verse 8 to 10. There, Paul again talks about one thing. Psalm 27, verse 4. You probably know this one well. One thing I desire, what I desire more than all, David says, to be in the house of the Lord. One thing I do, one thing I desire, above everything, is to be with God's people. Uh, what about Luke 10.42, Jesus speaking? Or James, James chapter 1, verse 8. James warned us against double-mindedness about following a number of things. And in verse 8 he says, purify your hearts, double-minded. you double-minded. Or what about Matthew 6, where Jesus talks about and says, you can't serve two masters, you can't serve money and me. You've got to make a choice here. You've got to get your heart to follow one thing. 
The scripture is full of these encouragements to pursue the one thing. And it seems to me that part of a Christian life is learning to um, find out and to get all of your priorities focused into the one thing that God has for you. It seems to me that's what Christian life is about. It's developing a sense of single-mindedness. It's, it's developing this passion, this dedication to fulfill God's purpose for your life. And it's most concerned about reducing all the priorities to singular priorities that really are deep motivations that we can live by. And so what is that one thing for you? Have you ever thought about it? What is the motivation? What gets you out of bed in the morning? It's never too late to consider that. What is God calling to you with your life? Are you living with that sense of destiny? Are you living with that sense of calling? It's amazing to me that people that are motivated by the compassion of Christ, so often, what do, where do you find them? You find them as nurses and doctors helping people. Why? Because there's a God-given compassion in their hearts that they want to help people and love people. Well, that's working out the eternal destiny. I'm not saying it's, you must all think about this in terms of church, about what I'm doing. I'm saying the eternal motivation in you, that God has made in your life and, and you are uniquely you and that motivates you. I met someone this morning as a lawyer. Perhaps, perhaps the deep motivation is, God, I want something of your justice to come. That's what you've gifted me for. So I work it out in this way. What is it for you? It's not the same for all of us. What is the thing that God has called? And what's the motivation for you that you're living for? The destiny for your life. Six. I'm doing quite well. Quarter past. Six. Do you notice, I want to call this thing, calculated forgetfulness. Do you notice to win the prize, you have to learn to forget some things? Do you notice that? What do I mean? Well, Paul says, forgetting what is behind. And the past, you have to mainly leave that in the past. Leave it aside. And I'm not saying that we forget God's kindness to us. I'm not saying that we forget God's goodness to us, His mercy to us, His grace to us. And I'm not saying that we forget the lessons that we have learned in our lives. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, we must forget our past sufferings. Forget them. We must forget our failures. How many of you have messed up in your life? I've got both hands up with 10 fingers extended and my 10 toes as well. I've messed up countless times. Paul says, forget what you have messed up. Forget your failures. And sometimes, most of the time, forget even your successes. Forget them. When my boys were teenagers, they had a, a favorite movie called uh, Napoleon Dynamite. I might have mentioned this before. But it's a, it's a classic story about this young guy as a teenager growing up in America in the 80s and all the things that he goes through. And he's got this uncle. And his uncle is basically a failure. He's basically a guy who's done nothing with his life. And all through the movie, he's in his 40s, he's got a football, American football. And all that he does is he talks about his high school career as a football player. 
Remember when I did this? Remember that play when I threw the ball and the touchdown, we scored the touchdown. Do you remember? Do you remember? Do you remember? And he's in his 40s and he's speaking to his teenage uh, uh, nephew and all he can speak about is the glory days of his high school career. Come on. Too many people live like that. Oh, I did this down, you know, 20 years ago. It's wonderful that you did that 20 years ago, but what about right now? What about living now in the present? What about your friends and your family right now? What about your eternal future? Yes, I can also say some things that I did when I was in my 20s. So what? I'm 55. A lot of water has gone under the bridge. I can't keep on saying, oh, do you remember when, when that happened? Do you remember how good it was when we planted the church? Do you remember our red van that we packed and unpacked? Do you remember how people served like that? Do you remember how the church grew? So what? (laughs) I mean, those are good things to remember, but they are in the past. Forgetting what is behind. And some of you, I want to encourage you, leave behind the injustices that people have done to you. Why do I say that? Because... All that's, going to, all that's going to do in your life is it's going to fill you with resentment of how badly you've been treated. And do people treat you badly? Unfortunately, yep. Do Christians behave badly? Unfortunately, yes. Leave it behind. It's no good if we're held back by a sense of failure. You know, so many things we could have done differently things we could have done that would make things the present better. What does Paul say? Paul, remember Paul? He was the one when Stephen was stoned, he was the one approving of his death. He was the one holding the cloak while the, peop, the, the guys stoned him. He was a persecutor of the church. Do you think Paul was held back by failures of his past? No, he said, this is what I do. What Jesus has done in my life, I've learned to throw off the past and forget my failures. My friends, some of you need to forget the failures of your past. Don't let it hold you back. Why? Because as long as you're looking backwards, you're not ever going to see the better things that God has for you in the future. Come on, please, someone encourage me. I'm doing my best. We press on. Why? Because God has better stuff for us in the future. And so, number seven, it requires forward looking for the future. Do you notice the language again? Straining forward to what lies ahead, says Paul. He's like a runner in a race. And when I was young, I did run. Back in the good old days. (laughs) These are the good old days. Just you wait and see. These are the good old days. In five years, we'll all be saying, remember the good old days. And this is what... Paul says this is how we win the prize. We strain towards what lies ahead. And then we begin to shine with the glory of having achieved something for God. Eight, it it requires a conviction that there is a prize to be won. Number eight, it requires a a conviction that there is a prize to be won. It's not the only place in the New Testament that Paul uses this image of running a race. There's some others. You can look at it in your own devotions. 1 Corinthians 9. Verse 24 to 27. 2 Timothy verse 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Hebrews 12, verse 1. There's this image that is used in the New Testament about the Christian life being like a runner running a race. And so what is the sort of prize that we should expect if, we, if, we, if this image of running a race is a good one? Well, certainly 
applause, yep, recognition, maybe fame. These are things that motivate people when they run races. The opportunity to run other races, those things might be helpful as we think about the prize that awaits us. But I want to say, this is what I think something of the prize is, that certainly, this, certainly, certainly this basic motivation in our lives for this prize, it certainly includes the smile of God. Hey? It includes the smile of God. It includes the well done. It includes that, I hold this in my mind when, when, I'm, when I'm feeling discouraged, that, that sense of God putting his hand on my shoulder, looking to my, my face and saying, well done, Ant. That's what I'm living for. <laughs> well done, Ant. You didn't give up. And I think... It also includes something of public recognition one day. How many of us don't live our lives serving Jesus in ways that people don't ever see or think about? Yes, and that's what the Bible says we should do. We should be motivated by that, that we serve His church and we serve other people because we love Him. That's why we're motivated. And we never, there's no recognition right now of that. But this thing of heavenly reward is that actually there will be in eternity public recognition of for what has been done in the unseen way right now. There will be recognition. There will be the well done of God, the smile of God, and everybody in eternity will know. And there will be reward. So it is about, in a way, about getting a name. But it's about that sense of the life that we've lived is consecrated to such an extent that it becomes visible to other people and they can see it becomes obvious on that day that we've lived for Christ. Remember what uh, 1 John 3 says, Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we are has not yet been made known. John is saying it. What we are, not yet been made known, but... We know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him. Yes. I'm going to be one day perfectly like Jesus. I'm going to have a great head of hair. I'm going to be in shape. <laughs> I'm going to be shining with eternal glory. Why? Because that's my reward. So what other ways is... is um, a Christian life like a race. Well, here's some thoughts uh, that I think we can think about. Certainly, there's a course that is clearly marked out for us. That's what I think Paul says over and over. There's a route that God has for your life. And the route that God has for your life it requires discipline and attention to detail and attention to what lies ahead and not looking back all the time because that's going to slow you down. There's a winning post for you. There's a winning post for me. And at the end of the course, there's a prize to be won if we cross the finishing line uh, through our lives. And so that's an illustration. It's not a perfect one. Why do I say that? Well, if you're running a race, you certainly don't stop to help the other athletes, do you? <laughs> Why? Because then you don't win the prize. But much of the Christian life, much of the Christian life is about stopping to help others and to taking time to help others. So it's, the illustration falls down there, but it, it does serve in other ways. And the Christian life recognizes that winning the prize is part of the call. Do you get that? That's what I'm trying to say this morning. Winning the prize is part of the call. 
Now, I was fascinated that my friend Clive went to an education uh, conference and was saying that they are doing all this kind of research about why young people are so anxious. And why when people leave school and uh, go to university, they are so anxious. Well, here's a thought for you. You know, we've grown up in an egalitarian system which says everybody is equal, and that's a very powerful and good thing. You know, when our boys were at school, you know, even though you didn't win the race, you were a winner, and you all got the prize. You heard about that? That's a cool thing in one way. But here's the problem. When you get into the business world, it is cutthroat. It's absolutely, if you don't perform, you are out. So what have we taught our children? Have we taught them resilience? Have we taught them that when you get beat, you pick yourself up and you don't give up and you persevere? Have we? Because that's what it takes to win the prize in the Christian life. Oh, my son, don't worry. You're a winner. Why, well, I love my child. I want to say you're a winner. What is his boss going to say to him when he doesn't perform? My friend, out. Oh, but I'm, I'm a nice person. Of course you're a nice person. But there's something of inner resilience that has to come as we learn to persevere in what God has called us to. Please don't hear, I'm not angry. I'm just trying, I'm desperate to try and encourage you if you've got a child. Do them a good, good thing. Don't just pat them on the back when they fail. Encourage them to get up. Why? Because I failed many times. And we fail over and over. And if we're going to win the prize, you can't give up. All right, and this is what I want to see, what I want you to see about winning the prize. You see, we have been called to holiness and, and this heavenly reward, which is so encouraging. But you see, it's not just an invitation. Paul's language is also a powerful drawing and pulling us in the right direction. What I'm saying to you is that because God has called you, you can have the assurance that God is going to help you win the prize because every step of the way, He's drawing you and pulling you and encouraging you into the right direction for your life. He is absolutely committed to that. Why do I say that? Because I've said this before. He wants you to become like his son. Now, you can go kicking and screaming into your future. You can resist God at every level. But he is inexorably, relentlessly determined that you are going to become like Jesus. That's the destiny for your life. So everything that is not like Christ in your life is going to die. And everything that is more like Christ is going to continue to be encouraged into life. That's the destiny that God has for you. So either you kick and scream and you resist, or you say, Holy Spirit, I don't know everything. I'm so sorry for my arrogance. Help me to become more and more like your son. Help me to be the first to say sorry. Help me to encourage my kids in a way that is godly. Help me to do these things because I want to be more like you. Ninth. What I'm really saying is that to receive the prize that God has for us might require us to rethink a little bit and investigate what truly motivates us. What truly motivates us? And I, I, I say this because of what comes in verse 15. Verse 15 says, Paul says, All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Up until this point, Paul has been talking largely about himself, 
But now he turns to the readers of this letter and to all of us, and he includes us all when he says, and if on some point you disagree, think differently, that's okay, God will show you. I find that absolutely fascinating. I find it striking that that little comment shows us a huge amount about this man, Paul. It shows us even when he's writing this letter, he knows there are going to be people that might disagree with him on what he's saying. You see, if this is a major point of doctrine, you know, Paul is, when it comes to doctrine, people that deny grace, he's harsh. He's not interested. He just, you can read the book of Galatians. You can read what we've read now in Philippians. He is not interested in people that deny the grace of God and say you must live by a moral code or law. Or he just recognizes that brings death. He's absolutely, in his language, doesn't tolerate it at all. But here, he's talking about an attitude. Why do I say that? Remember Philippians chapter 2. I want you to have the same attitude of Jesus, though he's God and equal with God. He did not consider that to be grasped, but he humbled himself. And what does he do towards the end of the chapter? He says there are some guys that are like Jesus in this regard. One is a guy called Timothy, another is called Epaphroditus. Follow them, because they're exactly the example of what I'm talking about. They've got the attitude of Jesus. And so he's talking about an attitude here. He's talking about a mentality. And I've said this again, and I want to finish by reiterating this. He is inviting the Philippians and all of us. It's an invitation to everyone who reads this letter to seek a deeper knowledge of Jesus Christ for themselves. He's inviting everyone to a much richer experience of the resurrection power of Christ and all that it means. He's inviting all of us to a greater awareness of Jesus, in the, even in the middle of the, of the hard things that we go through. He's inviting us all to, in a greater measure, conform our lives to become like Jesus. He's inviting all of us to have a greater humility towards other people. It's an invitation. And Paul understands that there might not be some that are ready for such a noble call. And so he doesn't beat people into submission. <laughs> he doesn't. He trusts the Holy Spirit's work in their life. He's a beautiful example. I'm going to conclude with Philemon 8.16. There's this uh, situation where... Um, Onesimus, who's a slave, runs away. And uh, Paul is writing um, to, to Philemon to put that situation right. And, and it's fascinating to me because recently there's been this, 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 this debate in the church about, you know, why has Christianity never denounced slavery? You know, Christians have been for slavery. And I just think, bizarre. Do you even read the Scripture? Do you even have a look at what the Scripture says? Because here's the heart of what Paul tries to say in living in a situation where there was slavery. Listen to this beautiful language. Paul writing in Philemon, verse 8. Therefore, Paul says, although I in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you should do. It's the very language of Paul. He says, I'm an apostle. I've met Jesus face to face and I could order you to do what you should do. What does he say? Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. That's what he says. It is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner for Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, the slave. 
I appeal to you who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he's become useful both to you and to me. And I'm sending him, who is my very heart, the slave that no one even thinks about, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but it would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason that he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back no longer as a slave. Come on. Paul doesn't even think in those terms. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and a brother in the Lord. What is my point? My point is the Christian life changes everything. You don't even see people in those terms anymore. They are brothers and sisters in Christ, equals before the cross, and we love everybody in the same way. Come on. That's the Christian life. It changes everything. And so... Paul here appeals to all of these people in the Philippians and trusts that God will lead into a way of humility and spiritual hunger and an appetite for him. He never tries to bully anyone into submission. And I've been part of churches that bully people. You have to do this if you're a Christian. You will wear these clothes. You will not do that. You will not drink. You will not do this. And it's a subtle kind of legalism that comes on the church. And I want to say to you, I am free in Christ Jesus. And I am free on the inside and I love Him with all my heart. And that is why I do what I do. Not because anyone is moralizing and saying, you will do this and you won't do that. I choose to do what honors Christ in my life because I love Him. And I trust it's the same for you. And so Paul says, if you differ from my view, that's cool, but God will show you. doesn't bully people. I love this. I'm, I'm trying to finish. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9 says this, puts it in this way. We make this our aim, Paul says to the Corinthian church. We make this our aim to be well-pleasing to him. That's it in a nutshell. It's all that I'm saying. It requires a conscious decision in your life to keep the main thing, the main thing, the primary goal in front of you. And the highest priority for all of us is not to see people saved. It's not to see churches planted. Those are all good things. It's not to have revival even. Those are all good things. The primary goal for your life and for my life is to do all that we can to please Jesus. That is my aim, to please Christ in all that I do. And I promise you, if we do that, revival will come. Churches will be planted. People will be saved. That's the main thing, to please Jesus. Let's keep the main thing, the main thing. And lastly, Paul says in verse 16, live up to what you've already attained. So, Part of receiving God's prize requires faithfulness to what we have already reached. 
We must hold true to the things, these things that God has shown us if we expect God to show us more. And so in a real sense, Paul is saying this. Even though he's writing this letter that's an inspired word of God, he doesn't think in some ways that his letter is going to be enough. That's interesting to me. Why? Because he's saying, actually what he's saying is, you need the Holy Spirit to bring revelation of what I'm writing. And so I love the Bible, I love to study the Bible, I love to preach, but it never replaces the Holy Spirit. It's the Word and the Spirit, you see. And whenever we preach or sit, sit under any kind of uh, teaching or read for ourselves, we have to have the Holy Spirit enlighten us, bring revelation to us, so we fully, fully enter into what God has for our lives. And so... In a real sense, Paul is saying by that little comment that he recognizes that we might not fully understand what he's trying to say. But it takes the Holy Spirit shining his light on his word, shining it into our hearts to fully understand what Paul is saying and embrace it. So let's keep in step with what we have really been given. And to those that do that, more will be given. And that's the pathway to this great reward, this high honor and glory that Paul is inviting all of us to live for. But actually, you know, I believe that if we live for God like this, with a single-minded devotion, a passion, a zeal, all these things that I've tried to speak about this morning, we do begin to experience something of that eternal prize right here, right now, in our lives, that we will know fully on that day of glory. And uh, I think we can hear, just as God said over Abraham when he was going to offer his son, now I know that you love me. We can hear that over our lives right now. And that's enough reward until we reach that final day in glory where we will hear, well done, a good and faithful one. You've loved me, you've served me, and now enter in to what I have for you in eternal glory. My friends, keep your eye on the prize. There's a prize for you. There's a reward for you. Run the race like a good athlete. Pick yourself up, don't give up, encourage others along the way. Hold up the hands of those that are struggling. Why? Because it's part of the plan of the reward that God has for you, and you do it out of love for Him and for His church and for, for other people. Keep your eye on the prize. Amen. We're going to break bread now, and I'd like you to think about, maybe we can just take a moment just to think about what I've said and maybe you can ask yourself some honest questions in your own life. Maybe you've never thought about what the eternal destiny is for your life. Maybe you have. Maybe you feel frustrated that you're not kind of more fully into that. Whatever it is, just let God speak to you by the Spirit. And then we're going to celebrate together what God has made possible for us in Christ. None of this is possible if it weren't for the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We would never even know the Father. We would not even know the eternal destiny that He has for us. So let's just take a moment. I'm going to stop talking and just, why don't you pray and uh, let God speak to you out of what I've shared this morning. And then we're going to break bread together. Father, we want to thank you for all that you made possible for us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for transforming our lives. Thank you for your hand reaching into our lives and changing our future, changing our destiny. Thank you for the better things that are still to come. Thank you for the race of life that you've called us into. Thank you that there's a prize that awaits us 
and right now we choose to remember what you did in the upper room. After the meal, you took bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, you took the cup and you said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Eat and drink in memory of me. Thank you, Jesus, for what your death and resurrection made possible. We thank you that we call you Father, that we are sons and daughters because of all that Jesus achieved for us, and we rejoice. My prayer, Lord, is for everyone here, that we, as we celebrate around your table, that we'd find courage for our lives to live as you've called us to live, that we'd find courage to run the race, we'd find courage to persevere, that that eternal destiny that you have for us would motivate us deeply from the inside. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.